brother Eric. So, um, yeah, he, he could have done a scripture reading in a, in a basso profundo this morning, but uh, I don't think he was, uh, so they, they need to get better. I think it's just a common cold, but uh, a, common, a common cold can be uncommonly uncomfortable. Well, good morning, folks. We're a little light this morning. You guys must have heard what, they must have heard what I was going to teach on. Oh, well. <laughs> so D- Jesus teaches on prayer. And Jesus emphasizes patience and penitence in prayer. Our memory verse, uh, same as it was last week. Let's say it together, please. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. So last week we talked about the great miracle which Christ performed, the raising of a man four days dead and rotting. We looked at how God has similarly raised us from spiritual death while we were helpless to fix our condition. And we looked at how this miracle pushed the Pharisees into actively plotting Jesus' death as opposed to just hoping he would die and save them the trouble. We're going to be talking this week about the importance of prayer. Jesus spent much of his life in prayer. He engaged in prayer, often for long periods. He modeled a life of prayer. He taught his disciples about prayer. He taught parables about prayer. And this week... As you might imagine, we're going to talk about prayer. And of course, we're going to have readings by Alexander Scorby. And the first reading makes a wonderful time for anybody who's sitting too far back to come further forward. Luke chapter 18, please. Chapter 18. And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint, saying, There was in a city a judge, which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cried day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? So this is a parable. Jesus taught in a parable. So we need to apply the rule. Yeah, yeah, great. It's going to be one of those days. We need to apply the rules we learn to interpret it. What's the point of the parable? Okay, it's literally right there in the first verse. Exactly right. That men ought always to pray and not to faint. We don't have to interpret the point of this parable. It's given to us by Scripture. Okay? How many characters are there in the parable, and who do they represent? How many characters? Two characters. Who are they? Specifically, the unrighteous judge. And that that is important. 
because the judge, the unrighteous judge, does not represent God. In many parables, a judge, an authority figure, a king, is God. But he's called out as unrighteous, so he cannot represent God. You've got to be very cautious when you're interpreting parables. This is a story where the widow just represents us, and the unrighteous judge doesn't represent anyone other than an unrighteous judge. This is a parable by contrast. If even the unjust can be moved by persistence, how much more can a righteous father, our righteous judge, respond to our persistence? Okay, so it's, it's, a, it's an argument by contrast, which is not, it's a little different from some other parables. And you have to be careful. We should not draw the conclusion that God is bothered by our prayers. Because the unrighteous judge only gave the woman what she wanted because he was worried that she'd bug him. Don't draw the conclusion from this that we get what we want by pestering God. We should not conclude that acting like two-year-olds in a grocery store gets us what we want from God. That's not the point. The lesson is in the behavior of the widow. She had no expectation of judgment. She knew, excuse me, of justice. She knew this judge was unrighteous. And yet she persisted. We have every expectation of justice. We believe that we, when we come before the throne of God, he answers our prayers. We should be that much more persistent. We should maintain, in the face of no answer, our status of prayer, our position of prayer, our willingness to pray to God. Let's look at another parable in Luke 11. And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend? and shall go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine in his journey is come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, Though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity he will rise, and give him as many as he needeth. And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? So persistence in prayer. We have a similar example of a persistent friend. Now, is this a parable? This story that Jesus just told, do you think it's a parable? I'm sorry, brother? Yeah, I'm not sure. I think it's more of an example than a parable. Um, and there's, there's, a, there's a line in between the two. So um, if we look at it as a parable, we've got to try to kind of interpret it more par parabolically. 
uh, more as a parable, and I'm not sure it really fits very well into the mold. But it's a very reasonable example. It's more an example than an allegory. A friend comes at a time of inconvenience. Now the example here, very first century example, a friend comes and he wants bread because he needs bread because first of all, he can't go out to the store to get bread because there's no stores open at that hour. Someone has come and visited him and in, in accordance with the principles of hospitality, he has to feed this person. He's got no bread. He's embarrassed. So he goes to his friend and says, can I borrow a cup of sugar? Can I have a couple loaves of bread? And it's a perfectly good reason, but his friend has closed up the house for the night. The kids are asleep. The house is shut, meaning the door is barred. All the lamps are off. He's stumbled to the door because someone has beaten on it. Go away. I'm in bed. It is too late to ask me for bread. But Jesus says, the guy at the door is going to get the bread, not because his friend is such a good friend, but because he just wants him to go away so that he can get back to sleep. Again, the example here is not, we shouldn't take from this that our prayers are supposed to bother God. It's the wrong interpretation. Okay, As Jesus himself says, what matters is the persistence. Both examples show resolution. Now, resolute is not a word that we use very much anymore. Has anyone heard the word resolute in the last year? I don't think so. Do we know what the word resolute means? I'm sorry? It determined is a good word. To be resolute is to have a goal and to move towards that goal, regardless of what's going on around here. Okay, to be, re- to be steadfast, to be determined, to move towards your goal. You, you demonstrate tenacity, but tenacity can shade over into pestering. <laughs> Resolute is, I have a goal, and that goal is important to me, so I will focus on that goal. And we should be resolute in our prayers. Shouldn't be like a nagging two-year-old who wants a box of cereal at the grocery store. But it should be bringing our requests up before God again and again and again and again. And I'll move on before you get bored. Jesus teaches that effective prayer has two components. First of all, it has to be within God's will. The judge was supposed to dispense justice. That was his job. The friend had the bread and would have been willing to give it at normal times. He just didn't want to get up. Both of these requests are reasonable requests within the context of the example. The widow wants justice from a judge. The friend wants bread from his friend. They're reasonable And so the example there is something within God's will. Praying resolutely for a Cadillac is not applying the teaching correctly. Second of all, we need to be resolute. We need to set our eyes on the prize and keep going regardless of anything. 
Now, misunderstanding prayer. That last verse, for everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. It has to be within God's will for you. Now, is that clear in this passage? No, but it's clear all throughout the rest of the Bible. And remember, the principle in interpreting the Bible, here a little, there a little. The Bible tells a holistic, a overall view. And if you focus on one little aspect and just take it out of context and interpret it the way you want, you're never going to get the right answer. God is not a slot machine. We don't keep feeding prayer in until it pays out. Okay? Prayer can affect change in the world. We're told that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You can move God through prayer, but also prayer affects us and changes us by renewing our minds and aligning us with God. If you think about a situation where you're here, and God is there, and by prayer you want to move God this way, in praying you will move God this way. Not that much. But as you keep praying, you're moving this way. Because you are starting to look at the world through God's eyes. The more you pray, the more you align yourself with God. So you end up getting closer to God. Prayer does move God, but it also moves you. Jesus closes with, this, with another example there in that second passage. Talks about an earthly father who wants to help and encourage his children. If they ask for bread, he's not going to give them rocks. Nor a scorpion instead of an egg. But what are the kids asking for? Are they asking for Cadillacs? They're asking for the essentials of life. Bread. <coughs> egg. The other example was a fish. They're all food. They're not asking for toys. They're asking for the essentials of life. The father is providing to the child. How much more can then we expect when we humbly ask our Heavenly Father for something that He already wishes to give us? And that's the key. Within His will, stuff He wants to already give us. And then Jesus closes on God giving us the ultimate gift, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. Let's continue in Luke 18, please. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Penitence. That's the other word today. 
When's the last time you heard the word penitent or a form of the word penitent in the last year? Do we know what penitent means? Yeah, it's kind of out there. Feeling or expressing remorse for one's misdeeds or sins. It's the act of being ashamed of what you've done. Feeling sorry for what you've done. Not feeling sorry for getting caught. (laughs) Feeling actually sorry for what you did. Recognizing you did wrong. For a mature Christian, when we sin, it is damaging our nature. Because our nature has become less sinful. And we recognize that in sinning, we're hurting ourselves. That's penitence. That's wishing you had never done it in the first place. That's penitence. Jesus told this group a very straightforward parable to a group of people who were secure in their self-righteous sanctimony. We're good and we know it. He says, oh, you think so? The Pharisee thanks God, but for the wrong things and with a very wrong attitude. You think God is impressed by us? Because, you know, we're, we're pretty impressive people, right? You ever start thinking that God should be impressed by you? That's a, that's a warning sign right there. Many parables contain two contrasting behaviors, the right way and the wrong way. And this parable is a perfect example of that. The despised publican, remember, the publican is the lowest form of life in Israel. You guys remember what a publican is? He's someone who runs a bar, right? He's a tax collector. For who? The Romans. These people who came in and took over our country, they didn't ask, took over our country, stopped us from being independent, and now they take money from us to give us protection from themselves, apparently. And their soldiers have got a bad attitude. And they're always, they don't let us worship God the way we want, and we can't kick them out. And this person, this publican, collects taxes for them, and they all cheated besides that. They collected more than they had to, and they just know they're just keeping it. They're greedy bloodsuckers. They're the scum of the earth. The most despised person in Jewish society is doing it right. He's the person Jesus is using as the example of doing it right. On the other hand, the revered Pharisee, the most respected person in Jewish society, is doing it wrong. This is what's called cognitive dissonance. The listeners are trying to hold two facts in their heads, and those facts are contradictory. The Pharisee is wrong, the publican is right. Wait, what? The advantage of cognitive dissonance is it gets your attention. Because it makes your brain go. Have you ever had someone teach you something and it's like, wait, that makes absolutely no sense at all? Have you ever had someone try to explain quantum physics to you? It, trust me, it makes your brain hurt. I studied quantum physics and it still made my brain hurt while I was studying it. 
but it makes people think it gets their attention. So Jesus casts this parable in the opposite roles you'd expect. Okay? It's like um, recasting the Ten Commandments, and Charlton Heston is the bad guy, and Robin Williams is Moses. You, you, don't, it, 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 you don't expect it. It's, it's casting against type. Okay? I just, you don't, or Jim Carrey is Moses. <laughs> okay? Let's just go ridiculous. No one would ever go see that movie except out of sheer curiosity. The publican approached God in humility, recognizing his own unworthiness. Broken over his sin, he begs for forgiveness. This is penitence. And this is the attitude we're supposed to have in prayer. We do not ever want to come before God as a Pharisee, thanking him for who we are, except thanking him for where we are that is in Christ. Nothing wrong with that. Let's continue in Matthew, please, brother. And when thou prayest, Thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. You may remember this passage from our study of the Sermon on the Mount. A, a message from Jesus' second year, where he really, after becoming popular, first starts turning and really teaching. And this is one of the cornerstones of that teaching, the idea that prayer should never be a public display. The hypocritical Pharisees love to be regarded for their own righteousness. They love to be respected. Jesus says this is the wrong attitude in prayer. If you're praying to be seen by others, you're doing it wrong. That's not the point. Prayer should never be about aggrandizing who you are. And that always makes it a bit difficult if you're called to pray in public. So I would suggest that if you're practicing praying in public so that you can sound better to the people around you, you might be doing it the wrong way. If you're praying, if you're practicing praying in public so that you can do a better job of speaking for the congregation to God, that's much closer to the right attitude. It must be difficult to be called before the Senate to pray. Have you ever been called before the legislature or an august body to pray, brother? Yeah. You know, you want to be a great representative of God, and you don't want to fall over into a 
pharisaical. I imagine you did some preparation. Hopefully I'll never be called upon to do that. I should be safe. On the flip side, because Jesus says this is one way to do it wrong. If you're praying to be seen, you're doing it wrong. He says on the flip side, heathen, the Gentiles, they have this idea that the, they'll pray the same prayer over and over and over and over and over and over and eventually they'll get through to God. The Tibetans over there in Asia, as part of their religion, build a prayer wheel and the prayer wheel has pictures on it that symbolize a prayer. And then they spin the prayer wheel and by spinning it, they believe it's repeating that prayer over and over and over and over so that God will eventually hear it. The idea of repeating a prayer over and over is to a hum- human concept of God who maybe doesn't pay attention all the time. So you have to keep repeating it so eventually he has time to listen to you. Because after he's listened to him and to him and to her and to him and to him and to her and to him and to him and to him and him, because he can only listen to one at a time because he's a limited God, and him and him and finally gets to you, you better still be praying or he won't hear you. So you keep repeating it over and over and over and over and over. How many prayers can our God listen to at once? All of them. He's infinite. How many times do you have to pray for God to be able to hear you? Once. But, while God will hear you if you pray once, Jesus says you should keep praying. But again, it shouldn't be a scripted prayer. Jesus does not encourage us to pray the way the Catholic Church encourages people to pray. They have their set prayer, the Our Father, the Hail Mary. I'm sure there's a bunch of others that I don't know of. And they run through that one as one of the standard elements of worship. You're worshiping God, you're worshiping Mary. Okay, we'll worship Mary five times this morning. Bang, 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 slot machine, prayer in, eventually results out. That's not the principle that Christ taught. The effectual, fervent prayer. Not the prefabricated, scripted prayer, but the effectual, fervent prayer. Does that mean God is moved by the quality of our prayer? No. God is moved by the sincerity of our prayer, the truthfulness of our prayer, In the same way, if you ask your parents for something, they do not expect you to send them a text message, please buy me 0.3 ounces of orange juice tomorrow. I can tell you, I've gotten texts like that from my kids before. Do they move me? Absolutely. Do they move me in the direction my kids want them to move me? Not really. We're getting back into that. I'm I'm slaying one member of the audience. Thank you, brother. God is looking for prayer that's not a repetitive prayer. That's not a public prayer. Where does that leave us? Jesus taught both of these things were wrong. What you're looking for is a heartfelt, urgent prayer, prayed in private between you and God alone. It's not a difficult concept. Now, the Lord also gave us a model prayer. 
Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Who doesn't know it? So I don't have to go over the text right now, but let's talk about that just for a moment, about how that is a prayer. First of all, it's not a magical mantra. It's not something you should repeat verbatim. Okay, It's not a terrible thing to repeat verbatim, but it shouldn't be something you're repeating all the time as a formula, because Jesus was pretty clear in his teaching just now, don't do that. It's addressed to our personal father. That's an important idea. If you got an opportunity to talk to the President of the United States, how would you address him? Formally or informally? Pretty formally. Okay? Even if it's someone you do not care for, like the current president, we still respect the office. Okay? The way you come before the president is not the way you come before God. God is our personal father. Now, does that mean we treat him with disrespect? No, but it's, I don't think it's the same level of formality. Because I've never met Joseph Biden. I have no idea who he really is. On one sense, I've met God. And he's revealed to me in his word who he is. And I have a personal relationship with him. The prayer is focused on God and on his purposes. The entire focus of the prayer is our Father, is God. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. The focus isn't here. It's here. The petition is for the basics of life. Give us this day our daily bread. Acknowledging him as the source for all. That's another form of worship. And then it's relying on God for the remission of sin. Forgive us our trespasses. That attitude of What was the word? Starts with a P. Yeah, not penitentiary. Incidentally, if you're ever wondering why those words are so similar, the penitentiary is a place where you go to become penitent, at least according to some guy named Benjamin Franklin. He built the first penitentiary in the United States in Philadelphia. Guess what? It don't work. Because penitence is all about an attitude. And jail is somewhere where we send people to breed better criminals. Unfortunate. But focusing back on the lesson, it's relying on God for remission of our sins and maintaining a forgiving attitude ourselves. And then finally, asking for God's protection and strength in avoiding sin and overcoming temptation. Every aspect of the prayer focused on God And everything we're praying for are things that God has already promised within God's will. So it is the model prayer in that it lines up all the points that Jesus has made about prayer. Focused on God. The idea of resolution is not there in the single prayer, but it's elsewhere in his teaching. Stay focused on God. Keep praying for what you want. And pray for things that are within God's will anyway. Prayers focused on God's glory. Honor Him. Demonstrate our trust in His sovereignty, provision, and faithfulness. 
repent of our sins and failings, ask for his help in honoring him, and an attitude of humility and penitence. How, how do our prayers do stacked up against this model? Don't answer out loud, just think about it. So, relatively short lesson today, which means we've got lots of time to discuss things. I do encourage you to speak up so we can hear you clearly. How would you respond to people who interpret the parable of the persistent widow to mean that God will give them anything they want if they pray faithfully and persistently enough? 